Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is debut author and clinical psychologist R.J. Jacobs. R.J. began his professional career in 2003 maintains a private practice in Nashville and focuses on a wide variety of clinical concerns. After completing a postdoctoral residency at Vanderbilt, he's taught abnormal psychology, presented at numerous conferences, and routinely performs PTSD evaluations for veterans. He has a debut novel out entitled And Then You Were Gone, which was picked up by Crooked Lane and published in March of this year, 2019. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, RJ, and thanks for making time to join me today. Hey, Gavin, thanks for having me. So for readers new to you and and your novel, what do you want them to know about And Then You Were Gone? And Then You're Gone uh, focuses on um, a main character who suffers from bipolar disorder. And I really, I love the idea of a character who uh, has a characteristic that normally would be considered a liability, Mm -hmm. uh, but becomes an advantage kind of as the story goes on. And uh, bipolar as a disorder has always fascinated me uh, clinically. I wanted to incorporate it into my story. Um, I think that uh, it's a good mystery just as a standalone story, but uh, the added depth from the mental health perspective, I think, makes it unique. Yeah, and I'm uh, reading this book right now, and I, I've really enjoyed the, the, especially the opening of this book. It's a fantastic opening scene that you can easily immerse yourself in as the reader. And for me, uh, it it very immediately interested me in the characters and, and invested me in them and their outcome. And I, I'm already, you know, just really starting off on this, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm really wanting to know how this is going to go. Um, how, how, how did you, how did you craft that that opening scene? You know, uh, I think that this is just part of uh, being somebody who enjoys writing and stories. Um, I think that uh, there's a part of your head that is always kind of dreaming up things or daydreaming Mm -hmm. things. And um, I was actually at a a state park, at a marina, uh, very similar to where the opening scene takes place. And you know, you start to have these thoughts like, what if, what if this happened here? Or um, wouldn't this be interesting if, if this was the case? Um, before you know it, you start like looking at the coastline or thinking about where the water goes to or how an investigation would take place there. Um, there was a time where I grew up in South Florida, uh, in Fort Myers, Florida, Southwest Florida. And um, originally I had thought about uh, that scene happening in the Keys. But I wanted the no- the novel to be set in Nashville, so when I found this lake, it was sort of serendipitous. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> uh, you you mentioned before about you know writing uh, about a liability actually generating a, an advantage with this character's uh, bipolar disorder. Um, that really makes me, as someone who's probably only has you know a base level or just maybe a little bit better than a base level um, knowledge or experience base with with mental illness from. Uh, just from my cop work, um, what what did you what did you see as the opportunity here with the bipolar this bipolar patient um, to for her to be able to lean on that illness to make that into an advantage? Sure. So, 
um, many, many uh, mental illnesses, I think, have become kind of destigmatized uh, mm-hmm. in the present. And I think that that's a great thing, um, especially in the setting where I work, which is primarily an outpatient uh, private practice setting. Most of my patients are very high functioning people. And they're very comfortable kind of speaking the language of mental health and psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, many people are comfortable admitting that they have depression at times or feel anxious at times. One exception to that is bipolar disorder, which I think still carries with it some stigma. And um, people are often embarrassed to talk about or embarrassed to reveal about themselves. Uh, you know, a, a confounding variable here is that uh, many people who are mental health practitioners, I think, get into the occupation uh, with the sense of curiosity about their own struggles uh, and about things that have challenged them or wanting to kind of put names to their experiences or get a handle on things that have been difficult for them. So I think a fair number of clinicians uh, have, have difficulties like this, and my character is indeed a psychologist. Um, when it comes to bipolar specifically, the advantage is that uh, in a manic state, uh, my character is able to just do things that many people would not be able to do, like mm-hmm. stay awake for several days at a time or have uh, potentially like access uh, creativity or insights or goal-directed activity that would just be unavailable to somebody who wasn't in that place. Wow, that's a, I I really like that. That's fascinating. Uh, one of the other things that I, I admire about this book already, and about you as an author, having never met a conversed with you before, is that the the scene open or the book opens up in you know a, a first person point of view from a female protagonist, and I would absolutely love to write uh, write a female point of view character as, as the main character, not just, um, a, uh, a, a sidekick or, um, you know, in a supporting role, but I am terrified as <laughs> that, that female readers are going to read my version of a woman and instantly knew that a man wrote it. Um, how did you go about the, 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 I guess the research and, and preparing to, to write this character in a way that was going to be believable to, you know, 51% of your audience. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I'll tell you the, um, my sort of dark secret about this is that I hardly thought about gender at all while I was writing this character. And so it's, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. So it's interesting because I wasn't sure if I was reading a female character for about the first 10, 12 paragraphs. Okay, so, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I actually talk a fair amount about gender in my office. Uh, one of the populations that I work with a lot is transgender patients. Mm-hmm. And so as I've gotten to talk with more patients who are in that place in their life, um, I've really become educated about a lot of facets of gender. So I'm interested in that. And I can't say that, that those concepts never came into my head, but um, the character just seemed more canny and believable as a woman, and I think that's just how I started it. But um, I, uh, to to be completely honest, I I never, um, or maybe not never, but seldom thought about gender concepts as I was writing it. I, I think I just tried to write something that was true. I have heard from women um, that have done a good job with this, which 
to your earlier point, has been a tremendous relief to me. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, when you said that you were too intimidated to do it, uh, I think I probably should have had a little bit more uh, intimidation as I got started. But uh, luckily, I, I, I seem like I did all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really impressed with, with your writing. And in, in prepping for this interview, um, I saw that you shared an article on voracious readers um, being kinder and more empathetic than the general population. And from, from a professional perspective, I was kind of wondering, is that because we have like no uh, such little time for human contact that we don't have the time and luxury of being assholes to everybody? <laughs> you know, um, human contact is a really interesting uh, concept when it comes to like modern life, because I'll tell you a number of people that I see describe depression symptoms. And really, I think they're, it's a function of being socially isolated. Mm -hmm. because so many people are into their devices and also so many people work from home. Many yes. people talk about being able to work from home as though it's a tremendous advantage when in fact it really cut, kind of cuts them off. Uh, so. Yeah, I've been really surprised with uh, uh, looking at a, or following a, a number of, of leadership, um, I guess, mentors and, uh, one of the the common themes um, among a, a lot of that part of the of the conversation it has to do with with isolation and technology and um, our uh, retreat from human relationships into this you know um, self gratifying chasm of of social media and and the internet and that you know one of the more important things that we can do as people is to put all those things aside and you know, look someone in the eye, shake their hand and have an actual conversation about, you know, what their life is really like. That is exactly right. Now you've worked as a mental health professional for almost two decades. And what, what got you interested in that work? You know, uh, yeah, it, I have to say that um, when I first started taking psychology classes in college, um, I had the experience of, uh, finding school, uh, finding those particular classes the most interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I had the experience that I think a lot of people have when they're reading books and discover that there is a name for something that they had observed before, but didn't know uh, was a was a concept that people talked about. And I remember the first uh, social psychology class I ever took. I felt like I had light bulb after light bulb going off. Wow. It felt very exciting yes. um, to think, wow, this is something that um, is not only uh, has been observed before, but there is research about, and it's a new enough field even still that there is plenty of research to do. And I was also kind of drawn into the field by that. Um, my, my PhD, in fact, is kind of primarily a researcher's degree. And one of the things that uh, made me want to get into graduate school was the idea that I could contribute to a body of research. Uh, still, if you go to conferences now, you can, you can run into people that um, have contributed to the textbooks that you read in undergraduate school. Wow. Uh, I remember going to a conference uh, my last year of college 
and uh, sitting across the table from Albert Ellis. And it just blew my mind. You know, there's many fields you can't do that in, in uh, psychology that was available. So it seemed, it seemed exciting for those reasons. Now, I, I was surprised when, when I got early in, 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 in my profession as a cop, I was surprised by the disparities between my recruiting video expectations of what my professional life was going to be like and, and some of its realities. Uh, what have been some of the biggest surprises for you from what your recruiting video expectations were of work as a psychologist and, and what the reality is for you? Well, you know, um, when I first started, uh, well, let me back up and say that I think psychologist, this is probably true of a lot of job titles, but psychologist is a job title where um, it can really be very different um, based on the work environment. Okay. So if I'm here in my office, I have the job title psychologist. Um, there's psychologists who work in the hospital or at the VA or across the street at Vanderbilt or even our researchers are statisticians and there are industrial organizational psychologists and we all do kind of different jobs. So what my expectations are kind of have self-selected me into this position. So in some ways I've kind of gotten more and more of what I've wanted, uh, which is the wow. clinical contact and, you know, less of, of what I haven't really wanted, which is a lot of the assessment or, uh, like psychometric stuff that for, you know, some people are really amazing at, but I found kind of tedious at times. Now, for us kind of more ignorant schmoes, what's a good working definition for us to differentiate a psychiatrist from a psychologist? Sure. So a psychiatrist is somebody who has an MD and they've gone through medical school and done a residency and, um, Sometimes they do uh, psychotherapy or counseling, but many times their focus is on uh, medication management and prescriptions. Okay. And, um, a psychologist has a PhD, or in some cases, uh, there's a degree called a PsyD, P-S-Y.D, and that's a doctorate of psychology. It's primarily a practitioner's degree. And they do all kinds of things. Uh, the thing that sets a psychologist apart from um, any other kind of therapist usually is the ability to do assessment and then to interpret uh, statistically assessment results and integrate that into a report that a, a patient could understand. Um, there are all kinds of other um, certifications and degrees uh, that vary kind of state by state for what constitutes a therapist or a mental health counselor. Okay. And um, sometimes there's a lot of overlap uh, in between those. And many times we all end up kind of doing the, the same job, but a psychologist, to answer your question <laughs> in a not succinct way, a psychologist <laughs> has a PhD and does counseling and assessment and a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who often is focused on medicine. So this almost sounds to me like the difference between what I see as just a lay person walking down the street of almost the conflict or the dichotomy between like Eastern and Western medicine that one is focused more on, you know, pills and prescriptions and, and symptoms and the other is focused more on like a holistic solving the root core of the problem. Is that fair? I think it's, I think it's a fair distinction. Um, I think also we can work in tandem pretty well. 
Um, and there may be times in a, a person's life where um, one of those needs seems more acute um, and they could benefit from medicine, say, or, uh, and alternately, there may be times when um, some self-exploration or some, some deeper drilling down would be beneficial. Uh, so, or in, in, in a, any combination of those. How much research did you have to do for, for this debut novel and how much of it was just personal experience um, and, and, and you just being able to sit and type about what your life has been like? Um, the, the research that I, I really had to do was uh, the procedural police stuff. Um, I got to know a couple of police officers who really helped me understand kind of the sequence of how an investigation would go. And um, the, I did that, luckily, kind of on the front end of writing the first draft so that I mm. wouldn't get in and then have to, like, uh, backtrack or do too much. Yes. Gone way down the wrong road, but um, it was really interesting actually to get to meet a couple of police officers and talk with them about um, the, the suspicions of mm -hmm. uh, what a character might be subjected to and uh, the process of how something might go and evidence collection. It was it was fascinating. It was, it was just speaking of being educated uh, in a in a sequence of things. I, I learned a lot in that. And on the on the same flip side of that, I would expect if if I were one of those cops, I think I would have wanted to lean as much on you uh, for your expertise. I, I think in in my experience, a very high percentage. Uh, anecdotally, I would expect probably at least 80, 85, 90 percent of the people that I ever had encounters with, other than traffic stops, because everybody breaks the traffic laws. But other than traffic stops, almost every call I've been on. Um, regardless of the call type, involves some aspect of um, trauma, of mental health, um, of mental illness, and you know addiction issues. I I have fairly extensive training in that from a law enforcement perspective, or, or by law enforcement standards. Mm -hmm. But you know, I think I, I still feel woefully inadequate um, to to really be able to do much other than like, you know, crisis intervention. Um, how, how, I guess was, was your interaction with those cops and, and what, I guess, what was your opinion perspective about their, uh, their education or their ability to, to respond to mental health issues? Man, I, I walked away from it with just a tremendous respect for law enforcement and just a deeper sense of like what they what they have to go through every day and just how fast things kind of come at them mm -hmm. and um, of the sense of them trying to remain optimistic and fight burnout in the face of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I got that. Um, you know, one part of me uh, saw some similarities bet between the way that police talked about wanting to stay optimistic um, and the way that medical professionals do at times when they end up treating the same kinds of, um, uh, symptoms and disorders again and again and mm -hmm. with patients who overutilize a hospital because of their own uh, like lifestyle factors mm -hmm. um, and just how discouraging that can be. Um, I think that um, one thing that I thought a fair amount about after I talked with police was like um, just, just how challenging it would be to be 
consistent and fair and like how you just wouldn't have a lot of room to have a bad day yourself. Yeah. That, that kind of impressed me. That was a big takeaway that it was the selflessness of it at times. Uh, impressed me. Yeah. And that was one of the things, um, I guess for my, my own, you know, men, mental health, um, and, uh, I guess paradigm struggles. You know, one of the things that, you know, we, we have to be able to do is to emotionally detach ourselves, right. From, from what's going on around us, from what we're walking into, what we're responding to, what we're seeing, what we're triaging. Um, and so we have to put our own emotions in this box, put it on lockdown, separate it from everything else. Um, but we still have to try to find a way to both be human. Um, and then later, hopefully to, you know, some, some type of professional who can, who can help us out, unbox all that grief and trauma before things end up going sideways, you know, in, in, in the career and the rest of your life. Yeah. And it's, it, it is a very tough spot to be in. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, I think that's gotta be a struggle for the vast majority of, of guys working the streets today. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Now the, the primary, one of the primary themes of, of this show is to, help writers incorporate greater authenticity in their writing and regardless of genre. And uh, I personally have a tremendous number of pet peeves about the way that cops, criminals, and the justice system are portrayed in fiction. And I expect you might have a couple about how psychology and mental health are portrayed. Um, what are most authors and screenwriters getting wrong? <laughs> yeah. Everything? Um, <laughs> no, no, well, one thing that I've, uh, I, two answers kind of come up. Uh, as I think about that question, the first is that I've heard from a number of people who um, either have bipolar disorder or have had a diagnosis that they've worked through in the past um, that have been relieved that the main character in this book, who's the protagonist, is the one suffering from the mental illness and not the villain who mm -hmm. uh, is portrayed as being crazy or out of their mind. I think a lot of times people are just kind of tired of that characterization. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of authenticity, you know, my sense is that over the course of a lifetime, um, most people have some kind of encounter with mental illness or would meet the criteria for a diagnosis. Um, and oftentimes, especially as you think about things as a writer, those are the most interesting times in a person's life. Yes. Yep. So uh, it's particularly interesting to think about telling a story in that time, but uh, from a diagnosis standpoint, they, they'd probably hit a, hit a diagnosis. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, unfortunately social media, I think perpetuates and uh, anybody who's listened to this podcast for a long knows I really don't like social media <laughs> and you know, not, I'm, I'm just old enough to, to really dislike it. Uh, I'm becoming a curmudgeon, but, um, you know, we end up looking at, uh, at the highlight reels of everyone else's life and comparing our lowest spots to them. Um, yeah, for sure. and you know, none of us get out of this life without experiencing trauma in some capacity or repeated traumas over time. Um, but you know, I think there is still, unfortunately, um, it, it's getting better, but I think still a, a, a stigma reservation in mainstream population about, mental health disorders or, you know, even, you know, among some of my own family that, you know, like the fact that, you know, you would go see a therapist must mean there's something really wrong with you. You have right. to be crazy to go see a therapist. When, you know, it's actually 
the opposite of that. <laughs> I, I often um, forget that because since you know I, I work here, it's very normal to me. I'm here all day long. Yeah, I, I forget at times when I meet with a patient for the first time that they may be coming in uh, with some reservations, maybe even some suspicions. Mm -hmm. uh, their guard might be up or for them, they've really had to overcome like a sense of stigma or uh, not wanted embarrassment around their family to even make it into the office. So sometimes I have to tap back into um, how much I respect that. Now, from, from my lay perspective, um, I assume that shows like Criminal Minds get at least some or most of the mental health issues right. And part of my concern, I, I see a lot of folks that rather writers that use other fiction as resource or reference material. And so I, I kind of, even though I think or expect Criminal Minds might get most of that kind of stuff right, I still fear about people using those types of things as reference material. Um, where would you suggest writers, aspiring authors go to get um, reference research material that, that's applicable to the characters they're trying to develop? Oh boy, that's a great question. That is a great question. Um, I would have to think about that. Um, it might be, you know, it might be the kind of research that uh, I was doing, but in reverse, maybe talking with a mental health counselor or a clinician. Um, there's a lot of good information that's just kind of out there. Um, you know, there's the diagnostic and statistical manual uh, that is mm -hmm. the uh, kind of the, the main reference book for our occupation. And for people who are interested in just figuring out different stuff about disorders, um, it's pretty interesting to just kind of thumb through and read. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, it's not complicated language. Uh, even though it's written for professionals, it's very accessible. Uh, so the DSM-5 might be a, a, a worthy uh, uh, acquisition to just pick up and thumb through. Oh, uh, note, quick note for the audience. Uh, DSM gets gets updated every few years as, a, as enough um, right. changes are made. So definitely, if you're going to do this, go for DSM-5, <laughs> not DSM-4, 3, 2, or 1, because things right. will be a little bit different. Um, now, in light of that, um, a lot of the folks I have on the show, too, are, are, are cops or lawyers or retired agents, and they can very easily just suggest that, you know, people go to, you know, take the local detective out for coffee and donuts or go to Assistance Academy to get some experience. You mentioned bringing up, you know, meeting with a clinician. How, how would somebody go about developing uh, a relationship, uh, a technical advisory relationship with someone in your position like yourself? Hmm. Yeah, aside from asking somebody that they already knew, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I would just suggest um, being courageous enough to reach out. You know, the, the police officers that I reached out to, one of them I knew already, but the other one I didn't. And they, uh, I think um, even as I think back about reaching out to other people, park rangers and so forth, trying to get the story right, um, I never was met with um, anything but, you know, warmth and welcoming about uh, almost feeling complimented that there was a writer who wanted to get the details correct. Um, so uh, I would just encourage uh, aspiring writers to be a little bit brave and brazen and go ahead and reach out. And um, 
you know, see if somebody would be willing to talk. Now, on uh, some of your your social media sites, which I, I, I stalked like a like an angry girlfriend for a little bit <laughs> to prepare for this, um, you, you shared an article on Kurt uh, Vonnegut and his work ethic. Um, aspiring yeah. authors with fantasies of a one-book lightning strike that changed their lives are going to be really disappointed uh, to learn that I think their odds are better at the lottery counter. Right. Um, so one of the recurring themes of the podcast here is that it only takes about a decade of blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success. Right. Can you talk about the process that got you from aspiring writer to published author and hopefully soon bestseller? You know, the best advice that I got about that was to make sure that I was trying to write every day. Uh, because I, I think that that's where, um, that's the process that separates um, people who are very serious about writing from people who just intend to write a novel and never quite get to finishing it. Um, I, I took that advice pretty seriously and was, was relatively disciplined about trying to write my word count every day. And some days it's just frankly easier than others. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's the, I think the place where um, you earn your right to say that you're an author are on the days when it's a real struggle and you absolutely don't feel like gluing yourself to a chair and working on it, but you kind of do anyway. Um, so after I, I got a first draft and edited it and had a second draft, um, I, I've been lucky to have, um, really helpful people in a writer's group. Um, mm. I think um, another piece of advice that I would give anybody who's starting out is to be super receptive to feedback, that that feedback is trying to help you. Um, I think a lot, because writing is so personal sometimes, I think people take critiques personally and I've really flipped it so that I just feel complimented <laughs> if anybody takes the time Yes. to read the stuff that I wrote. There's so much stuff anybody can read out there that if somebody takes the time to read my stuff and even think up feedback that they want to give me, I, I take it as now uh, a, a compliment and I feel very grateful to those people. So I think that's, a, that's an important mindset shift. And what first inspired you to write and did you have a, a writing mentor or somebody that you initially looked to for, for guidance or even just to model as a favorite author? Um, you know, I started writing fiction when I was in college and then I let it go through graduate school. And then um, as my kids got a little older and I started to have just a little bit more time to devote to, to it, I thought I, I better get back to this. Otherwise it won't happen. And I, so I bought a laptop and kind of started trying to sketch out a book. And then I went to a panel discussion at the Nashville library and JT Ellison, who's a local oh, yeah. author and Steve Womack was there and Jade and Terrell were there. And they were talking about this writer's conference called killer Nashville that I'd never heard of before. And uh, those three and uh, that first conference were really kind of how I, I put my feet in the water and started to meet other writers and the people who are now in my writers group. As you're working your way through, through this writing, through the drafts, um, what's the, the, like the editing process like for you? Um, 
so it's actually a pretty predictable sequence. So um, I'm, I'm really fortunate to have a great editor at Crooked Lane. And the sequence is I submit something to her. She submits it back to me with a huge long list of things that I need to kind of address or fix. I feel totally overwhelmed. I go through this cycle of feeling like, can I possibly do this? Uh, then I start chunking it up and taking it like point by point um, and then working on it a little bit at a time. But one thing that was a surprise to me uh, with working on the first novel was um, just how much editing and changing was going to happen before it came out. I think I didn't have a full grasp of that. And it, it wasn't a bad surprise. It was because I, I feel like the changes made the book much better. Um, but it, <laughs> there was a lot to do. Uh, yeah. I thought when I first, um, I had worked on it a lot before um, my agent uh, sold it. And I think I was under the impression that we were pretty close to just pushing print and, you know, out it would come <laughs> and it, you know, soon it would be, th th there really just wasn't much to work on at all, but it turned out, <laughs> turned out there was. Yeah. Every, um, every book for me is a is almost like this what I think of as a, a bipolar you know this manic depressive experience of you know there's so much aspiration and hope at the beginning of the thing and about three quarters of the way through it um, doubt and insecurity sit here at the desk with me <laughs> yeah, yeah. and the book is just an absolute I, I know it's a piece of shit it's never gonna work this is terrible nobody's ever gonna want to read this and then about the last I'd say five or six chapters, like, you know, you're back on top of the roller coaster again, and this is going to be the greatest thing ever. Right. Um, and yeah. yeah, getting that first, that first feedback, that first editorial feedback on the first book was almost heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah, it, it activates all those uh, fears and imposter syndrome feelings mm -hmm. where you think, yeah, does this stink or should I have never taken this up? Or, you know, maybe I should have uh, never, uh, never started writing to begin with, but, um, I, I've come to just see that as more of a stage that you ride right out. Yeah, it's uh, felt very much like this uh, this Adam Sandler moment of the you know they're all going to laugh at you, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, what would you most like readers to take away from your writing? Um, I think I want. Um, I'm still trying to learn the conventions of the mystery thriller genre. Um, I think that um, I would hope that my readers, when they read the story, um, sense like kind of a reaching for like a deeper human connection in the characters. Um, even as I'm trying to tell a good mystery story that meets expectations. Mm. That's a pretty, uh, pretty, universal drive among all of our all of our tribe and culture there yeah now as a writer i imagine you're also a a, a reader do you have a, a favorite fictional detective and crime show oh man you know i i wish i had a good answer to that um i actually hardly get around to watching much tv <laughs> i'm almost embarrassed to say that i i I feel like I wish I participated in that part of the culture more so I could know <laughs> what everybody's talking about. But. Is there a favorite fictional detective that you read? Um, boy, I, I, again, I, I wish I had something um, 
really resonant to say, um, no, I, 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 geez, I, sorry to draw a blank on that. I, I don't know. No, no worries. It's going to make this next question a little tough though. This is, I, <laughs> I do run uh, everybody through this, this last little gauntlet that comes in the podcast um, just because it's, it, it, it's fun for me. Um, but if God forbid it should happen, but mm-hmm. RJ, if, if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, okay, what fictional detective or investigative team or super secret agent would you want working the case? It can be anybody who's ever existed in fiction. Oh, that's a great question. Wait, do I know who murdered me? No, no. Mm. Nobody's ever had that follow-up before. I'd like the clarification. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, can I assist them as a ghost from the afterlife? It, it's your murder. You can play this right. however you want. Uh, and that's a great question. Um, I've got to say, uh, I'm a fan of the Mission Impossible movies. I, I'd probably take Ethan Hunt. That you, you know, you know that he's going to get the man at the end of it. Exactly. You know, there's there's a lot to be said for that, and uh, that. Reminds me that I, I meant uh, we'll have to have you have you back on when you, when your next book comes out and, and discuss the psychology of rough justice that that fictional readers love so much. Um, speaking of, of Ethan Hunt, uh, where can readers uh, connect with you? Find maybe a newsletter, or updates on upcoming releases, anything like that. Oh sure, um, my website is a great first stop. Uh, it's rjjacobsauthor.com. Um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, shouldn't be too hard to find there. Um, and then uh, my publisher is Crooked Lane. Uh, if you go to that website, there's a link for me there too. And what's the, uh, do you have a, 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 a current work in progress that's going to follow up this first debut? I do, yeah. So I've got a book that's scheduled to come out in about a year. Uh, it's also set here in Nashville. Uh, it involves a country music singer. Uh, and it's a, another murder mystery and the title is as of right now the title is somewhere in the dark wow i like it I'm, if as soon as that's up on pre-order let me know <laughs> just, be, just based on the title and premise i'll definitely uh, definitely be one of the one of the early readers cool well thanks again to debut author and clinical psychologist rj jacobs for making time to join me today you've been listening yeah. to writers on the beat where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast to the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.